0: Well, I want to uh, welcome all of you uh, to the new Hayek Auditorium. I believe this is the second event that Cato has hosted here since uh, since we've opened it up. So uh, I thank you for being among the pioneers. Uh, my name is Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato. Uh, I do a number of issues, uh, some of which will come up in terms uh, of the discussion today on health care and social welfare policy, Social Security and Medicare. Uh, also uh, done uh, some uh, work on uh, political evolution of the parties and the uh, big government conservatism that has infected the Republican Party uh, and how that stands uh, versus the Tea Party Republicans and where all that's going. So. I get to uh, to host this today. Uh, we have a, a very distinguished panel uh, uh, with us, uh, of folks who really understand uh, this town, at least to the degree anyone can understand this town, uh, and at least understand what voters uh, want. Often contradictory, uh, often confusing, especially confusing to the politicians here. I think. Uh, but uh, the, if you want to delve into what, uh, what they think, uh, I can't think of better folks here to, uh, to be talking about it. Uh, we are here, of course, uh, to talk about uh, Scott Rasmussen's new book, uh, The People's Money, How Voters Will Balance the Budget and Eliminate the Federal Debt. Uh, sure hope so. <laughs> uh, we will see. Uh, but, Scott, of course, uh, you know if you follow politics at all from Rasmussen's, uh, Rasmussen reports, uh, which is I think one of the, uh, the best polls that are out there. Uh, I uh, follow it on Twitter <laughs> and uh, I watch it religiously for what's going on out there. It has a really marvelous track record for accuracy. Uh, and, uh, and I think you have to watch that. He's a frequent guest, of course, as a pollster on all the news shows dealing with that. Uh, you may not know, in his previous career, before he got involved in polls, polling, uh, he helped found ESPN. So uh, uh, sports, whether political or otherwise, seems to be in his blood. Uh, after we hear from Scott, we will have two folks uh, commenting on, on his book and on the, the pol- comments that he makes and on the political scene here. Uh, one is Michael Barone, uh, who's the senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner. Uh, he's a fellow at the uh, American Enterprise Institute, but most people around this town know him as the uh, co-editor and uh, uh, co-author of the Almanac of American Politics, which uh, even in this internet age still sits on everybody's desk here in Washington. and. Uh, if you really want to know the the demographic makeup of Michigan's 6th Congressional <laughs> District, uh, he can tell you off the top of his head, which is uh, really frightening. And then finally, uh, Sean Trendy, who's a senior elections analyst for Real Clear Politics, uh, another website that I check uh, three or four times a day. Uh, and uh, he is one of the best tr- uh, track records, I think, in the industry for election prediction. Uh, really, uh, from a nonpartisan angle, understands uh, how voters are are skewing in various elections, how, again, another expert in makeup of various uh, congressional districts and states and how the electorate comes down, Uh, constant commentator uh, on the various news shows. Uh, He's also got his own book out, The Lost Majority, Why the Future of Government is Up for Grabs and Who Will Take It. So uh, we're going to hear, I think, some in-depth political analysis today. Uh, with that, I'm going to sit down and turn it over to Scott. who will tell us a little bit about what he's found about public opinion of voters and the national debt.
1: Well, thank you, Michael. And I, I want to thank the Cato Institute not just for this event. Michael uh, spent uh, time reviewing and uh, looking over the comments, discussing some ideas with me. And in fairness to him, I have to say he doesn't agree with everything that's in the book. Um, also, Chris Grebel here did a lot uh, on the national security chapters, and the same caveat applies. That they were a part of the whole process of bringing this together. Uh, when I look at uh, the budget process and the political system that we're in, uh, we have an entitlement mentality that is bankrupting America today, but it's not the entitlement mentality that uh, most conservatives and Republicans talk about. You know, it's not that people want free handouts and aren't willing to pay for it. It's not that people want more government than they're willing to pay for. It's that the political class wants more government than most Americans are willing to pay for. And the entitlement mentality that is bankrupting us is a group of people who feel they're entitled to rule over the rest of us. Uh, They have... Uh, been driving policy here in a direction for a long time that has created a fiscal crisis. The last time government spending went down from one year to the next in America was two years before I was born. And just for clarification, that wasn't in the Clinton era or even the Nixon era. Dwight Eisenhower was in office back then. We had five Republican presidents since Eisenhower, five Democrats, all of whom have seen spending go up every single year. Uh, And it's because they have simply ignored voter sentiment. Now, when you talk about polling, I think it's important to track the day-to-day stuff. And Sean and Michael do a great job of picking apart the demographic trends and what it means for this coming election or what it means for the overall balance of power. Um, I I have a more skeptical view, and I I can explain it best this way. Uh, I'm a New York Giants football fan. So when the Redskins play the Cowboys, I want them both to lose, And there's a lot of Americans that when the Republicans play the Democrats, they want them both to lose. They're not happy with the alternatives. And so when you look at the day-to-day tracking polls, it's important. And I do think every literate person should go to rasmussenreports.com at 930 every morning to see the daily presidential tracking poll. But that's like uh, if you can picture a a river in in a heavy rainstorm. And on the surface, there's all kinds of turmoil and bouncing around and splashing around. Those are the daily tracking polls. And they're interesting and fun to watch. But if you go a foot beneath the surface, you don't even know it's raining. And you find a deep current that is moving in the same direction. And as I started writing about the budget, I was trying to find those deep currents. Because what you see in American history is that public opinion moves before political action. We were all taught that the shot heard around the world in 1775 started the revolution. Actually, public opinion shifted in the 1760s and 1770s. There were um, catalyst events that we all learn about as legend now, the Stamp Act and the Boston Massacre and the Boston Tea Party. And eventually, this one event at Lexington started a revolution. And what's really important to note about this is the political leaders didn't rally people behind that cause. Thomas Jefferson didn't articulate the public view until 15 months later. So the public opinion came first, then there was a catalyst, and then a political leader articulated the public mood. And this happens again and again. On December 1, 1955, a young woman refused to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Rosa Parks did not start the civil rights movement. She was the catalyst. And we know in this case that it was public opinion that shifted first because she had done the same thing 12 years earlier and nothing happened. Public opinion needed to move. It took Martin Luther King to articulate those attitudes. It took Martin Luther King to challenge the nation to live up to the ideals of its founding. But that came afterwards. And by the time Congress acted, Americans supported the Civil Rights Act by a two to one margin. And so right now, we're at a point where voters have been frustrated about fiscal policies for more than 50 years. Spending has gone up every year, and they voted to elect politicians who promised every president and most members of Congress elected in the last half century have said they would cut spending. But it doesn't happen. Uh, And that frustration began to boil over with the Tea Party, and it's now looking for other outlets and other ways to... Say to say to the political class, something is wrong. We hate the bailouts, and yet we're going to have two presidential nominees who both supported the bailouts. How does that happen in a society that is supposed to be representative? When you begin to get to the federal budget itself, first thing that's important to note is that the deficit is not $15 trillion. Michael estimates it at $120 trillion. The Obama administration is much more optimistic. They say it's only about $70 trillion. doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Those are huge numbers. And the reason we have the discrepancy is when government spending began to tick up in in an unsustainable manner in the 1960s, uh, we had politicians who knew that wouldn't go down well with the voters. So rather than try to address the underlying problems, uh, they began a cover-up. And again, you know, this was the era of Nixon, and we did learn the cover-ups are worse than the crime. They redefined budget terminology to hide the growth of spending for 50 years. And it's finally reached a point where that's all breaking down. Richard Nixon and Lyndon Johnson initiated programs that provided benefits to their constituents and would be paid for by a future generation. We are that future generation. Now, in terms of what voters think, when I try to take a look at those deeper currents that are going on in the country right now, voters are not looking for handouts. They are they're willing to make hard choices much more than their political leaders are. They believe, for example, on social security what they were told, that you pay something during your working years and you get it back in your retirement years. They believe there is supposed to be a trust fund so that money can't be used for anything else, and they don't they're not looking for a handout on Social Security, they're looking for the payback that they were promised. They want those choices and trade-offs to be made real. But maybe the best area to see the difference is not an entitlements because that gets kicked around all the time, it's in national security. And remember that a majority of all federal spending goes to three areas, national security, social security, and Medicare. If you pay those items plus interest on the debt and you do nothing else, we're still running a deficit. So you've got to tackle those areas if you want to talk about spending. In national security, we have commitments around the globe to provide military assistance to 56 countries. So at Rasmussen Reports, we went out and polled the American people about should we provide military assistance to each of these countries. Only 12 made the grade. Most Americans are saying we should not be providing military assistance to places like France and other long-term allies. By a two-to-one margin, they are saying it is time to bring troops home from Western Europe and Japan. And these (laughs) attitudes do not reflect isolationism. Uh, They are not reflected by any of the presidential candidates in this year's election. This year, running for president, we have Ron Paul, who pretty much is saying you need to blame America first. We are the cause of the problems internationally. That is a view the American people do not accept. You have other Republican candidates who say we need to spend more on national security, also not a view that the American people accept. And then you have President Obama who's saying we need to trim the budget but get involved in more interventions, also something that voters don't accept. 75% of voters today agree with Ronald Reagan's view that we should never send US troops anywhere unless vital national security interests are at stake. And in most places that we're involved in today, voters aren't seeing that. Now, this is also a great area to talk about that polls can give you a sense of where the public is. The public is willing to make changes. And the way I describe it succinctly is they don't want to blame America first. They don't want to send Americans first into battle. They just want our military to protect America first. But having said that, Polls are not the way you make national security decisions on a day-in, day-out basis. What is needed is a political leader who can tap into these public opinions and provide a scenario, a framework for people to evaluate things. Uh, at the beginning of the Cold War, Dwight Eisenhower said There's a, there are forces of good and evil. There's massed armies facing each other on the borders, and that was a framework that people could accept. Nobody today is explaining in a coherent manner how we deal with clashing civilizations, what it means to have the the Islamic world rising up the way that it is, and their opposition to the United States. Where do we have US interests? What are our real interests? That is a discussion that needs to be had. And if that discussion is held, all the polling data I've just mentioned to you will shift somewhat. But there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the end result would be a more restrained uh, policy of military intervention and a significantly lower level of international involvement for U.S. military forces. Only 11% of Americans want us to be the world's policemen. These ideas are not even being talked about. The last, I think the last presidential candidate to talk about bringing troops home from Western Europe was Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, He would be appalled that we're still there today. Uh, The attitudes that we're seeing in national security matters are that the United States is a force for good in the world, but that doesn't mean we have to get involved in every single squabble in every corner of the globe. When you move from that to these other issues, uh, you see similar kinds of attitudes and discussions. Voters want to have credible alternatives And since there's a little discussion about uh, healthcare down the road in the Supreme Court today, uh, I'll just throw something in on that too. When people look at Medicare, they are not looking at something that you're gonna fix as a budget program. They believe that you have to fix the underlying cost of delivering healthcare. Most voters are looking for more choice, not less, because they believe competition will drive prices down. More choice, even to the extent of saying if your employer pays for your health insurance, you should be able to use that money to pick your own insurance plan. And if you find one that maybe covers less procedures or has a higher deductible and cost less, that's okay, it's your choice. You should be able to keep the change if you're saving money. That's a radically different idea than is being talked about in the president's health care plan or in any of the options that are out there. What I think is driving the health care debate it makes me absolutely certain that the president's law will be overturned either by the court or by this year's elections or by public reaction down the road, is there are three big trends that make the status quo unsustainable. The first is that if you went back 50 years ago, three point, the average American spent 3.6% of their disposable income on health care out-of-pocket costs. Today, it's down to 2.7%. So we're hearing all this rhetoric of the rising costs, but people are paying a smaller share of their income for out-of-pocket medical care costs. Why is that? It's because in 1960, insurance covered only half of all healthcare bills. The only way you're gonna restrain the cost is to make a greater alignment between the people who are making the decisions about the kind of care they receive and the people who are paying the bills. Second big trend in healthcare is that we spend twice as much money on medical care today as we do on food, and yet any medical expert will tell you that you could do more to improve the health of Americans by having them eat better, make better lifestyle choices, and exercise better than you can by any amount of spending on medical coverage. Sooner or later, that system has to change. It cannot be sustained in the way it is. If you're a lower income family and part of your grocery budget is being taken up because somebody can't pay you more because of the health bills, you're actually having your health damaged by the existing system. And the final thing that's bringing this up right now is the president's health care law. I have great respect for what the president did in terms of raising this issue. It's hurting his political popularity. It's hurting his Um, chances for reelection, but at least he had the nerve to put something big on the table and address a real issue. Paul Ryan did the same thing. He also got burned in this process. Uh, In January of 2011, just before Paul Ryan put forth his plan, Republicans were trusted more than Democrats on health care by a 14-point margin. After Paul Ryan's plan came out, it's dead even. So these are people, even if you disagree with their policies, at least they're talking about a significant issue. And that is hastening the the change that's coming. And when you start talking about particular numbers and budgets and details, it can get pretty numbing. In the book, there are proposals that eventually, if they were all implemented exactly as they are written in the book, would save would reduce our total debt by about $100 trillion over a decade. Uh, First of all, I know that they will never be implemented as they are in the book. This is a beginning of a discussion, not the end. change like that is hard to imagine and yet i know it's coming because public opinion has already made the shift and the reason that we we just can't we can't foresee the scope of change because we can't picture the details if i was standing here in 1978 talking about a new cable network like espn or cnn and i described to you accurately what's in, what was going to happen and what would happen in the next decade you would have laughed at me I would have said things like the major television networks that at that point had 90% of the audience would be struggling for their lives. And that television stations would be starting to lose money. And that the shows that were cut because they didn't have a big enough audience in 1979 would be the largest audience on network television 10 years later. It wasn't just that industry. If I was here 20 years ago today talking about the impact of the internet on newspapers, you would have laughed at me. And we are now at that kind of a sea change. Something is going to be a catalyst. The bailouts were start of it. Something else may come along. It may be a presidential candidate who says, I want to take on not just the entitlement side of spending, but also the military. It may be a fluke event that we can't predict. But when that catalyst occurs and when the change happens, the political class in Washington won't know what hit them. It'll be over before it even begins. Thank you very much. Well, thank, thank you, Scott. Uh, as
0: Scott says, I, I didn't agree with everything in, in the book, but I do find that an awful convincing argument. Uh, but, to do my best Ryan Seacrest uh, imitation, what does America? So let's hear a little bit from what, about, what, more about what America thinks and uh, Michael, why don't you come on up next? Okay, Uh,
2: thank you very much. Um, Let me just make a few comments and start off by thanking Scott for writing this book as well as for his work in public opinion polling. Um, He's getting us to try to think the unthinkable, and as somebody who I suppose has been a charter member of the political class uh, for the last 40 years, um, I thank him for not including as part of his um, uh program to disempower the political class uh, any element of capital punishment (laughs) Um, the uh um i I think that let me just make a couple points number one on health care uh and i think some of these other issues i think the political system is uh the political class is doing a somewhat better job uh than perhaps scott suggests he did mention paul ryan um, on the issue of, of the tax preference for employer-provided health insurance. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I'm heartened to see the evidence that the public uh, understands this at some level, uh, but it seems to me that isn't that something that Paul Ryan has uh, been seeking, uh, other Republicans, uh, and Democratic Senator Ron Wyden has, uh, has talked about this uh, not just recently uh, when he's working with Ryan on... Uh, uh, Medicare changes, but it's talked about this over the years. There are actually Democrats who, 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 who want to do away with that tax preference, which of course resulted from a decision of the Internal Revenue Service in 1943, which was motivated by a desire to increase war production. Uh, and didn't have anything to do with public policy on health care. Employers seeking workers were trying to, uh, in, in a time when you had wage controls, were trying to bid for workers with other things, and they said, aha, we'll give them more health insurance. And uh, the, they said, well, we'd like to be able to deduct that uh, cost from our tax provided and not have it taxable to the employees. So uh, in order to ramp up war production uh, about 70 years ago, uh we're stuck with this system that we have today uh and i think we may approach a point that scott is talking about uh where you know one august night somehow uh the congress is just going to suddenly gaboom and uh, bite the bullet uh in with the sort of with the sort of uh, uh, thoughtful deliberation, By that go boom.: <laughs> <laughs> with the thought, sort of thoughtful deliberation that we noted in the fall of 2008 on the tarp legislation, um, that is sometimes the way things get done in democracies. Um, let me just make as a second point. Um, you well, know, Scott talked about having people eat better. I don't know. I think I, you're not suggesting a broccoli mandate, are you) oh. The, uh, uh, I think some things are beyond the reach even of a, a really uh, smart political class or, uh, or whatever. Uh, but the, the, the third point I make, uh, I was put off somewhat by uh, Scott's proposals uh, to subject some of these things to referendum. I mean, this is a new, uh, that's a new thought for me at least, it's not one that I've thought about, a national referendum. Um, my first reaction is, gee, our constitution doesn't actually like referenda. Um, we it provides for a process to amend its own text, uh, but it's done by legislators. It's done by the political class. Uh, it's done perhaps by a convention that is called by legislators. Um, you know, they sure didn't think about a national popular vote, and I think the roots of uh, national referenda. Are more in the political culture of France, which was employing them in uh, other Latin countries, and are not and are relatively uncommon. Uh, others may correct me if I'm mistaken on this, but are relatively uncommon in the Anglo-Sphere countries, in the English-speaking countries. Uh, Britain did have a referendum on joining the Common Market in the 1970s, and uh, as Prime Minister Tony Blair was forced by the Murdoch press to. Uh, promised that uh, he would have a referenda if there was a proposal to bring uh, the UK into the Euro, Uh, but referenda I think have been relatively uncommon. Um, And I think as a practical matter, uh, I'm wary of referenda. Um, We remember the Florida election contest in 2000, uh, which took about 36 days to uh, reach a resolution. Uh, It was one that was you know unsatisfactory, in the view of many Americans, um, we had lawyers dispatched to sixty seven counties in Florida, uh, every courthouse uh, by both sides. Um, what if you had a really close national referenda uh, we 'd have to have the lawyers in three thousand one hundred and forty one counties um, we have Our elections under our system are administered by the states. With different uh, rules and regulations, primaries held at different times, conventions, all sorts of varieties of rules <clears throat> um, I not it, the one national contest we have the contest for president uh, is decided by the electoral college, which has the advantage of isolating a really close election in at least in just one state uh, the um, the national referendum, um, I'm not sure. Have you thought about how what what a mess that would be <laughs> if it was really close? Are you envisaging a supermajority being required? Um, how, how would this come about?
1: Well, first of all, the, the idea, just to clarify, uh, in the book, proposals found a majority support for having a referendum for tax increases or for changes in social security or medicare that was the the context that michael is talking about um, and it stems mostly from a lack of trust in congress uh, congress was expected to have heavy turnover for the first century or so we had about 50 percent turnover in congress each year it's become less of a check on the status quo so the idea grew out of that um, i did have the uh, i had some when i began to see the polling on it i had some nagging doubts about it so i talked to roger polan here in terms of the constitutionality of it. Um, And while it is not clear, it would be, he felt that it could pass constitutional muster. But the key was to add another check to a system of checks and balances and to be held on a general election day as opposed to in all those primaries. Yeah,
2: well, you would have, you know, in some ways you could see this as a consensus forming issue because right. your proposal is for Congress to draft the Congress legislation. Congress would draft it. It would be signed
1: and, by the president.
2: And, you know, if they had, they faced the prospect of voter approval, there would be um, political pressure There be no corn come up or with kickbacks. something that would have a consensus and right. would have relatively little vocal opposition with right. the hope that you'd produce a lopsided uh, result, if not the 99.99% that you'd get in some of the... Uh, what they call the socialist countries. Um, But I, I, you know, so you might have good political science aspects, but I am wary of that. So uh, with that, I'll yield back the balance of my time.
3: (laughs) Sean? Um, This is a really important book. It really is. And as I went through it, I, I, you know, was jotting down a lot of questions and problems I had with it, and I'll talk about those a little bit at the end, but the main conclusion that I came to as I was reading is my, my nitpicks and problems and conclusions didn't matter um, because, and this is what I'm gonna spend the most of my time talking about, just understanding something like this is going to have to happen. We've had one of these fundamental changes in our country that Scott was talking about. Um, and I don't think people have really woken up to it, but. but Think of it this way, there's three observations I have that tie together. Uh, and I'll go back to before you were born too. Uh, the first, the beginning of Dwight Eisenhower's first term, 1953, through the beginning of this recession in 2007. Government spending has almost always fallen between 17 and 23% of GDP. One year is an outlier in 1965. And this is remarkable when you consider what we were doing in 1953 and what we were doing in 2007. I could make a lengthy list, uh, I would be here an hour, but we've added an interstate highway system, federal aid to education, Medicare, Medicaid food stamps, Head Start, s the Medicare prescription drug benefit, we fought a couple wars, including a cold war that went over the course of all that time, and we always kept our spending between 17 and 23% of GDP. Second, we managed to reduce the top tax rate from 92% to 35% and the bottom tax rate from 22% to 10%. So we're doing a lot more stuff and we're taking a lot less stuff from the American people while doing it. And in the same time, our federal, and this again goes through 2007, our budgets remained fairly stable. Uh, on average, our deficits were about 2% of GDP. And there's only a few outlying years, the mid 80s and early 90s on the deficit side, uh, the 50s and the late 90s on the surplus side. And we can debate whether we really had surpluses then, but using the conventional definition, uh, we, had, we did. Um, The political class is lying to you about that, by the way. Uh, To tie these things together, in 2007 the budget deficit was 1.2% of GDP. This is half the size of the budget deficit from the final Carter year, even though in the interim we had reduced the top tax rate from 70 to 35%, raised aid to education, created the Department of Homeland Security and enacted a substantial uh, entitlement program. What made this possible is the GDP, what I call the GDP dividend. Uh, from 1953 to 2007, there were only 10 of 220 quarters where per capita GDP was less than it had been three years earlier. We were always growing the pie. And when GDP fell below that trend line, it quickly reverted to form. And this near-constant growth is given a regular boost to the pie Congress divvies up. And this is why every presidential candidate of the past 20 years, including Barack Obama, has been able to promise some combination of tax cuts, spending increases, and a balanced budget. And this is the world we've been living in. In 1997, you think about this balanced budget agreement that came together and how everyone You know, just kind of got along. Well, they didn't really cut that much. In fact, they started the S-Chip program, and they had a cut in the capital gains tax. This GDP dividend that we had enabled a win-win situation where everyone could get what they wanted because the pie was growing, and we just said, okay, we're going to give 2% of this pie to health care, and we'll give 1% to tax cuts. Everybody wins. But those days are over now. At least in the short to medium term and possibly in the long term. We've now had 11 straight quarters where GDP has been lower than it was, not just three, not just four, but five years earlier. Third quarter per capita GDP in 2011 was lower than every pre-recession quarter since early 2005. In other words, And I think this is driving a lot of the the budget battles we're seeing in in the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Tea Party movement. For the first time, Congress has had to choose real winners and losers, and that's not gonna change. Um, In addition to the general slowing of the economy, globalization, we have this aging baby boomer movement, uh, population uh, segment that's dropping out of the workforce, and that has a real impact on per capita GDP. My father would like to tell you that he's being perfectly uh, productive in retirement. When he was he was actually retired from uh, in in the 1990s, and he would say that he was grabbing his fishing pole and going out. He went back into the workforce in the 2000s, but as he approaches the next retirement, he won't be he won't be contributing uh, to this growth of the population. We're going to have a large segment of the population dropping out. When they talk about uh, in response to the unemployment rate, how the uh, segment, the percentage of the whole country that's being employed has dropped from like 64% to 56%. Part of that is because the economy is so terrible. But part of that is that the baby boomers are retiring. And that's why we're seeing the employment to population ratio drop in part. So, with this going on, something radical is going to have to happen. There's no two ways about it. Now, we know in the long term what the Democrats would like to do. They'd like to have a value added tax, um, maybe do some trimming around the edges, get rid of Medicare Part C, which happens to be the free market part, free market ish part of Medicare. (laughs) Um, We have Obamacare, which makes the insane decision. We have a system where third-party payers pay third-party payers to pay for health insurance. Now we'll have the government, another third-party payer, paying the third-party payer to pay the third-party payer to pay for health insurance, moving even farther away from the market. Um, and so I think when you read this book, rather than kind of nibbling around the edges and saying, well, I don't know about this or I don't know about this, you have to take it as kind of a bid in. Uh, auction that's going to, have to be ha- going to have to occur. And maybe you don't necessarily like this part of it. And like Scott said, it's not a, a complete blueprint on this is what has to happen, each individual part. But something of this scope is going to have to occur. Now, I do have, uh, with that said, uh, I, I will, there are two things that kind of bugged me as I was reading through the books, two questions I had. And so I'll, I'll go ahead um, And ask them. The first is, as I read the book, a lot of the things in it have broad, broadly popular support. The question, the the first question is, how much of that support overlaps? Uh, In other words, revoking the antitrust exemption for health insurance may be more, and I don't know, it may be more popular with Democrats than Republicans. That that seems plausible to me. Um, on the other hand, some of the, pro, some of the movement towards um, making Medicare more market-based might have more support with Republicans than Democrats. In other words, Republicans and in independents on some of these things might add up to 60%. Democrats and in independents might add up to 60%. But when the whole package is provided, is provided, do the parts of the Venn diagram drop off and you have like 10% of the American people that would accept it? Um, and then the second question is that I'm concerned that this underestimates the power. And one of the best things about the book is it doesn't treat the American people as idiots. Um, And you can't underestimate how rare that is in Washington today, and especially in political science. It's the most off-putting part of political science as a discipline, is that it doesn't treat people, it doesn't give the people their due. Uh, And that's, that's the most hopeful part. But the political class has power for a reason. Um, you know, we're, they're all here in Washington, D.C. They, they have lunch together and they, they create conventional wisdom. Um, and so the problem is, you know, this political class also has partisan appeal. And so while the Republicans may talk, I thought it was fascinating that infrastructure doesn't play well. Um, But talking about or cutting infrastructure doesn't play well. But talking about cutting Amtrak, suddenly you get a big majority. Well, so the Republicans, let's just say, put forth the plan to talk about Amtrak. That doesn't mean that the political class will talk about Amtrak and the Democrats certainly won't. They might frame it in terms of infrastructure to preserve their power. Uh, this, and this reminds me of the problem that the Democrats ran into in 1993. Taxes on the rich polled well, but Republicans called it tax increases on small business, which doesn't poll well. Um, gas tax to save the environment polled well. Republicans just talked about the gas tax, which didn't poll well, um, and it, it was a, a debacle um, for, the, for the Democrats. And so the question is, how do you break through um, especially, and I think Citizens United was likely decided, but especially uh, with the possibility that Citizens United even increases further the power of the political class through contributions.
0: Uh, Scott, why don't you take about five minutes to answer their things, and then we'll go to questions from the audience. Okay, uh,
1: that last question is is really key. Uh, <laughs> If you found – if you wanted to find somebody who would agree with everything that was – every proposal that is in the book, uh, you probably do have 10 percent of the population, and I would not be a part of it. (laughs) Um, This was where public opinion is broadly. And again, just to take a a simple example, if you were to uh, talk about that list of countries I mentioned and who should be defended, uh, that's a starting point for a discussion, not the ending point. Uh, I think the bigger picture of that discussion is what should the mission of our military be, how how engaged should we be, and then begin to come back to a strategic assessment, and it would change with leadership. Uh, but leadership should be done in the manner of uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, who said that the role of a president is to be the advocate for public opinion to the government. So there's a, a sense there that perhaps you come in with these ideas, okay, voters are saying we'd like to see a less global policeman role. Uh, There are political and and security realities we have to address. Let's have a discussion on how you get there. Uh, Also, I think it is uh, what became clear in doing this that that contempt for voters that comes out of Washington is very strong. I love the National uh, Journal poll that said 59% of political insiders don't think the American people know enough or have enough understanding of the issues to have their opinions count. I mean, that, that gives you a sense of where this debate is, and I think that is entirely wrong. But it does have to be presented through a leadership approach. Uh, Michael would like to see uh, a privatization of social security. Uh, from everything that I see in the polls, that's never going to happen in, the, in at least in my lifetime. Uh, however, we also the, – the, the proposal that's in the book uh, is to let people trade off their own retirement age. So that if you want to retire later, you pay less in taxes now. If you want to retire earlier, you pay more in taxes now. I'd like to claim credit for this because about two-thirds of Americans like the idea, but Franklin Roosevelt came up with it. He actually thought that there should be, in the ultimate oxymoron, mandatory contributions – and then voluntary contributions for people who wanted to have additional benefits. Uh, But the reason that that plays well, it's not the specific policy proposal. It gives you a hint of where the public is. They are saying Social Security is an important program. It has provided well for seniors. The trade-offs don't make sense to us today. They don't make sense because we're paying a lot in and we don't think we're going to get our benefits back we would like to bring that decision-making process closer to home, closer to your kitchen table. And when you do it that way, something very interesting happens. Uh, I don't know if Cato's done it, but several groups have done polls showing that if you ask about raising the retirement age, it doesn't poll all that well. But if you let people make the trade-off themselves to pay less in taxes now and have a later retirement age, it does very, very well large numbers of people, particularly under 40, would say, how far back can I push the retirement age? How low can I push my taxes today? And I would do that. And this sounds like a simple change when you make this type of a change, but it has the potential to cut the outlays for social security by about 40 percent by the middle of this century. So, I mean, the, the, the the types of changes to get when you shift the decision-making authority to individuals um, are staggering.
0: Yeah, I, I will note that there's legislation to do that uh, by uh, Senators Dement and Lee, and uh, I forget who it is in the House. Uh, it's out of Louisiana. But, uh, so people have been listening to you.